and welcome to the Iran Podcast. I'm Negar Mortazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, I speak with a journalist based in Tehran about the recent presidential elections in the country. We talk about the mood on the ground, the differences between this election and previous ones, and where the country is headed with Ibrahim Raisi as its president. We also talk about U.S.-Iran negotiations in Vienna, the future of the nuclear deal, and Iran's regional policy and presence across the Middle East. My guest today is Reza Sayah, a journalist and documentary filmmaker based in Tehran. For the past 24 years, Reza has reported for international news organizations including CNN, Al Jazeera, PBS, and France 24. He also sits on the board of the U.S.-based charity Blossom Hill. Reza, welcome to the Iran Podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. It's great to have you. Let's start from this election. You've covered a number of presidential elections in Iran from 2009 to the uh, previous one, and you were also on the ground witnessing what happened in this presidential election. Talk about the mood on the ground, how the election went, and how it was different from the previous ones you saw. Well, compared to the 2017 election, it was a stark contrast. I mean, when I covered the 2017 election here in Tehran, there was so much energy, so much activity, so much enthusiasm from both camps, from um, the Rouhani camp back then and the the Raisi camp. I've, I've covered presidential elections in the United States, and I've never seen this much activity uh, and, and energy, people uh, with two weeks to go before election day, stomping the vote, getting people to come out and vote. And, and the outcome was, I think, a 73% voter turnout. Nothing like that this year. Um, you know, obviously, it, it had a lot to do with the Guardian Council's uh, decision to sideline uh, the leading reformist candidates and the, and the moderate candidates. But it, it was a very slow um, an easy, frankly, election to, to, to cover. It, it, was, it was very quiet. Um, and I think uh, the, the, the polls and the voter turnout showed that, that it was the, the lowest voter turnout ever. It was indeed the lowest voter turnout in the history of the Islamic Republic. Talk about that. We know there's this deep sense of voter apathy, of frustration and anger at the system, and also a sense of hopelessness for um, the status quo to change part of it um, because of the economic situation of the country. Talk about all of that, why you think there wasn't much um, excitement and enthusiasm for this election. Well, I, you know, I, I think it had, had to do with, with the Guardian Council's uh, decision um, you know, to sideline the reformists and the moderates. And, and, I, and I think you, you saw many reactions here in, in Iran. If you know Iranians, you, you know few things surprise them. But the decision by the Guardian Council to sideline and you know, bar the reformers surprised many Iranians. Uh, and, and the surprise spanned across all political camps. Uh, obviously, the reformists and the pragmatists and the moderates were surprised and disappointed. But what was interesting, many conservatives were somewhat surprised too. Uh, despite what many people think, many Iranian conservatives believe in the republic element of the Islamic Republic. They believe that Iran has a government that represents the people. And they were anticipating a competitive race between Mr. Raisi 
and a formidable candidate like Ali Larijani or Esak Jahangiri. That obviously didn't happen. What was remarkable is that Raisi himself, soon after the Guardian Council's announcement of the final seven candidates, he called for a more competitive field. So here's the favorite candidate acknowledging that this election was going to be such a cakewalk for him and calling for a candidate that would make it more competitive. I mean, when's the last time uh, that happened? But beyond the surprise, obviously, the ultra-conservatives, the establishment loyalists are happy. Supporters of uh, Ebrahim Raisi are happy. Uh, and remember, he does have millions of, of supporters. And what's interesting is then you have Iranians who aren't necessarily fervent supporters of Raisi, but they see Mr. Raisi as the only viable option, the establishment choice, and the only man who has the power and the backing to improve things here uh, in Iran. First and foremost, uh, the, the economy. So they went out and voted for him. And when you speak to them, and I was at a print shop uh, uh, this week, and I asked the, 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 the employees there, did you vote? They said, yeah, we voted. And when you speak to them, they will tell you, let's not criticize Raisi even before he started his presidency. Let's see what he does. Let's then decide. So you have some Iranians who have that viewpoint, but obviously many Iranians, namely the reformists and the, and the moderates, are very upset that they didn't have a, a candidate and that uh, Raisi is likely going to be the president for the next eight years. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that Raisi ran against Rouhani in the previous election, the 2017 you were mentioning, and he still roughly got the same amount of votes, a couple million more than last time. But the difference was that, as you're saying, the other side of the electorate basically sat this election out. Why do you think the Guardian Council did this? Because there's all this talk of Raisi having higher ambitions than just presidency, and it seemed like there needed to to be a guaranteed win or a path to winning a fort for him. Why do you think this happened to Guardian Council, the, this unprecedented disqualification to the point that even someone like Ali Larjani, who's not a moderate or a reformist by any means, was left out of the race? It's impossible for me to say for certain why the Guardian Council did this. But many people are of the view, and I'm, and I'm sure, you, I'm sure you've, you've heard this view, that this is a critical juncture for the Islamic Republic. That mm -hmm. um, you know, during the next eight years, um, it, it, is, it is very likely that uh, there's gonna be a succession to the Supreme Leader, um, it, it is very likely that for the economy, it's, it's going to be a, a critical time. And the ruling establishment decided to consolidate power to sideline um, any, any dissent, any disagreement with how they want to run things for the next eight years and who they want to put in, put in place. And many people believe that Mr. Raisi is being groomed, um, you know, for uh, to be the next uh, supreme leader, and you know whether you whether you like this or not, whether you agree with this approach or not, there is a certain sense of logic to what the ruling establishment did, if indeed this is their plan. And the logic is, we are in power. 
the voices of the people could be a threat. Remember the turnout in 2017. Remember in 2009. We need to get a few things done to sustain the Islamic Republic. We don't have time for opposing voices. So it is logical for us to consolidate uh, power and put our man in place. And as you know, right now, the three branches of the government, the presidency, uh, when Mr. Raisi takes over in a few weeks, the judiciary and the parliament will be dominated uh, by, by conservatives and they can pretty much uh, do uh, what they want. So many people are of the view that this is, you know, why they did it. Obviously, uh, you know, the conservatives, the ruling establishment uh, cannot make the people go away. The people are anticipating change. They want change. Their frustration is growing. The economy here is struggling. So many people are of the view that the conservatives who are now in power, in full control, better do something to make the lives of ordinary Iranians easier, uh, or there'll, there'll be consequences. It's interesting um, that you mentioned that there's also talks by Iran watchers, and I also of this view, that the maximum pressure campaign, the years of the Trump administration's hawkish policy and rhetoric on Iran also played a role in ultimately marginalizing the moderates uh, in the way that they did and helping the hardliners uh, come of the view and then eventually position to try to consolidate power. How much do you think the maximum pressure impacted this political scene inside Iran? In what ways, if any, did it impact the people's view, the hardliners' position, and um, eventually this election? When the nuclear deal was signed, I saw the biggest celebration I've ever seen in, in my life here in Tehran. There is a major thoroughfare here in Tehran called uh, Valias. It, it, I think they say it's the longest thoroughfare road in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. That street, which is miles and miles long, it was packed with people celebrating the signing of the nuclear deal and celebrating hope, the possibility of the economy opening up better relations with the West. Imagine if that happens. Imagine if Donald Trump is not elected president and the deal is still intact in economic relations open up between Iran and Europe, Iran uh, and, and, and the U.S. Um, and the economy improves here and people feel that improvement. It would have been much more difficult for the ruling establishment to sideline the reformists because they would have gotten credit for uh, making those, those changes here. So I, I certainly think the, the maximum pressure campaign did have uh, an impact in, in, um, uh, in, in Mr. Raisi and the conservatives now taking full control uh, of, of the government uh, because they pretty much blamed the reformists. They said, you had a chance. We, we told you that you should have not, not trusted Washington. You had your chance. Now it's time for you to move over and for us to take over.
Mm-hmm. And going back to Ibrahim Raisi, we know he's an ultra conservative, a hardliner. Even uh, coming from the camp, the factions within Iran uh, that have been very vocal and opposed to the JCPOA and the nuclear negotiations, as you also mentioned. But recently, around this election campaign and even after his victory, he's um, signaled that he would support the negotiations and the JCPOA. Talk about what you think will be Iran's foreign policy direction after IEC, because right now there are these nuclear negotiations happening in Vienna to return to an existing deal. But President Biden also has ambitions of doing follow-on talks with Iran on other issues. How do you think, first of all, the nuclear negotiations and an eventual return to the JCPOA would um would continue under Ebrahim Raisi as president? Yeah, I, I think even with Ebrahim Raisi as president, you know, I, I don't think it's going to have an impact um, on the nuclear talks in Vienna or Iran-U.S. relations. I, I don't think they're going to change the current path that they're on. U.S.-Iran relations and, uh, and Iran's position on the nuclear deal, they're, they're never determined by the president. Um, many here say it's not even determined by the supreme leader. It's a policy <clears throat> many believe that's shaped and determined by, by the upper echelons of the ruling establishment. It's impossible to say who that is. Uh, you can be sure that the supreme leader is part of the process, um, but there's mounting evidence that the intelligence arm of the Revolutionary Guard is part of the process. The Supreme National Security Council is part of the process. And the current policy that's established is that we want to engage with Washington if we are respected and if we don't have um, to kowtow and show servile deference to Washington, we'll talk. And you see that with the Iran nuclear deal. So it's unlikely for a president to come in and say, let's scrap the, the deal. He may talk a little tougher, um, uh, you know, but, but, I, but I don't think he, he's, they're going to change course with their position on the nuclear deal and U.S.-Iran relations. Mm-hmm. And what about other issues? We know specifically Joe Biden has talked about Iran's missile program, which is something the Obama administration was also interested in negotiating Iran's regional presence, its regional policy, its influence in a number of neighboring countries. Um, and eventually even um, he's talked about domestic issues and human rights violations in Iran. How do you think those negotiations, potential negotiations on deals that are not existing on the paper would happen under Ibrahim Raisi, if at all? Not going to happen. <laughs> <They're> not, <laughs> that's a short answer. <laughs> they're not, no, they're, you know, that, that's what Washington, that's what Washington, you know, wants. Iran's position is, you know, we're, we're you know, we're not, you know, those, those issues are off the, the table. The, the priority right now is a nuclear deal that we committed to, that we followed through and Washington pulled out of. You know, I, I think they may be open to, to discussing these issues, you know, down the road, but not now. Absolutely uh, not now. That would be seen here as, as bowing down to, uh, you know, Washington's pressure and, and they're not going to do that. And, and by the way... And, you know, many here in Iran, especially, you know, the, the ruling establishment, believe, you know, all these issues are an excuse to continue to apply 
pressure on Iran. I mean, their, their view is for years, um, you know, Washington, Iran, Hawks, the Israel, the Israeli lobby um, were banging the drums about Iran's nuclear program. And Iran's position is, okay, we came and did what you asked. You know, we restricted our nuclear uh, program in return for sanctions. Uh, the fact that you're now want to focus on, you know, missiles or, you know, regional activity is, is proof that all of this is an excuse and this pressure is, is going to, to continue. Mm -hmm. And uh, I want to specifically talk about Iran's regional policy because you've covered um, the region, uh, multiple important events, you've uh, covered ISIS, you've followed Iran's presence across multiple countries. Iran has a strong presence in a number of its neighboring countries, and it's it's a presence that's seen as problematic by Washington and U.S. allies in the Middle East. Talk about your views on uh, on this regional policy, the logic that you found behind it, covering um, this from the ground and from a different perspective than many Americans have. Clearly, um, you know, as as you mentioned. Iran's activity in the region is problematic to Washington. However, um, there is a there is a view. Um, I mean, obviously, uh, Washington argues that Iran has wide influence in the region, and that influence is is growing. But there there is a view that Iran's foreign policy, regional policy, is not an outcome of a desire to dominate the region. And in contrast, it's an outcome of insecurity. It's an outcome of Iran understanding that they're surrounded by uh, rivals, by enemies, by U.S. military bases in Iraq, up until recently in Afghanistan, the U.S. You know, is, is in Pakistan and, and other countries. Um, and due to insecurity, some believe that Iran must have a presence to counter the presence of their rivals within the region. Obviously, this, this is an ongoing debate between uh, you know, people who have different views of, of, of Iran um, uh, but I think many people here believe that it's only logical uh, for Iran to have a presence in Iraq, in Syria, when um, you know there, there's there's states that uh, don't have good intentions for Iran. They have a presence there that Iran needs needs to counter it. Mm -hmm. And there have been also interesting stories, not so much. Um, told um, to American audiences, but of Iran, for example, helping or collaborating with U.S. forces when they were trying to go after the Taliban, um, of Iran or Iran-backed forces um, collaborating with the U.S. and U.S.-backed forces to defeat ISIS, for example, in Iraq. Um, talk about some of those stories and how the lack of understanding or knowledge about that existence 
um, impacts people's one-dimensional view on Iran's presence in the region, or as some in Washington call it, malign behavior. Yeah, I think it's it's you know any fair-minded, objective observer of the region of Iran uh, would not dispute that Iran played a critical role in the, the defeat of ISIS in Iraq. And years ago, um, they, they offered to, to, to help the U.S. under the Bush administration against, against the Taliban. In 2017, you know, I went to, to Iraq to do a report on Iran's role in the defeat of ISIS. And senior military officials, politicians told me that if it, if it wasn't for Iran's presence, especially on the ground, the militias that they supported, Hashd al-Shabi, uh, that according to them, ISIS would, would be at their, at their doorstep. Uh, the U.S. certainly you know, provided um, you know, air, air power, but if it wasn't for the boots on the ground, these militias supported uh, by Iran, according to senior military officials and senior government officials in, in Iraq, ISIS would still be there. And it, it was a rare occasion where the U.S. and Iran tacitly worked together to defeat a, a common enemy. I mean, that, you know, to me, is, is a remarkable story. But it didn't fit the narrative, the dominant narrative in, in, in Washington. Uh, the narrative that, you know, portrays Iran as the leading, quote, state sponsor of terrorism and one of, and, and a danger to U.S. interests in the region. So that story didn't get a lot uh, of, of play. Uh, and I think it was, you know, due to the, to the limitations, unfortunately, um, you know, of the coverage of, of Iran, of, the, of, uh, of complete coverage of Iran. And I, and I think it was, it was a story that, that's, that's missed. And oftentimes to this day, Iran hawks, uh, you know, piling Iran with radical groups uh, like ISIS, the Taliban, and Al-Qaeda, where, whereas Iran for years has fought against those groups. Mm -hmm. And what about the assassination of Qasem Soleimani? In January 2020, Donald Trump basically ordered the assassination of the top Iranian general who was very much um, the center of Iran's presence and policy in the region. The U.S. had a different view of him. Um, but how much do you think that assassination, that event, impacted Iran's, uh, first of all, view and policy of its presence in the region? And moving forward, um, the actual um, force, the Quds force that Ghazab Soleimani was a commander of, how, how much do you think that uh, operation is changing on the ground? I, I don't think uh, that assassination has impacted um, Iran's goals within the region. I, I think they're committed to having a presence uh, in Iraq, in, in Syria. But I think in, in many ways, Soleimani's assassination and Iran's reaction, uh, response um, to Soleimani's assassination, uh, you know, put on display, um, you know, in many ways, Iran's weakness when it comes to responding 
uh, you know, to these to these types of attacks. In addition to Soleimani's, you know, assassination, there was a nuclear scientist who was assassinated. There's a number of reported attacks in, in nuclear centers, and you can see that Iran simply cannot stop these attacks, these assassinations, and they cannot respond uh, in kind. In, in obviously, after the Soleimani assassination. They fired a, a few missiles uh, targeting a, a U.S. military base in Iraq, but it's widely reported that they notified Iraqi officials who then notified the U.S. military base so they can abandon that, that base. And, and, I, and I think that highlights the disparity in military force, that in many ways uh, Iran's enemies can do what they want and Iran simply um, cannot respond in, in kind. And I think that speaks to a degree to the view of many here that Iran's policies approach to the region is one that's based on insecurity as opposed to one of domination, that they have the power to dominate. These are developments, instances that to many people show that Iran simply doesn't have the power the military power, and the support in the region needed to dominate. Even so, that's a narrative that's prevalent among Iran hawks in Washington. Mm-hmm. Brother, you've been covering Iran and the region. You've been based in uh, multiple locations in the region for years. Talk about your experience seeing the region from the ground as an American journalist working for American outlets and how that it changed your perspective because you and I were talking about U.S. media coverage of the region and the shortcomings um, of of that perspective. Talk about how how it's changed your mind or the different perspective you've seen and why you think there are these shortcomings presence in the uh, U.S. media coverage of Iran and that region. Yeah, I think to put it in a nutshell, you know, what, what I've learned, you know, over the past 12 years of, you know, being in the region, being based in, you know, Pakistan, Egypt, here, covering, you know, the wars in Libya, you know, Afghanistan, Iraq. In a nutshell, what you see on television doesn't, or these days on your iPhone or your iPad, doesn't always uh, match reality, and, and that you know that 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 could be that could be troubling, troubling, um, because people tune in. People who can't obviously travel to to these places, they tune in to news organizations, um, uh, you know, who shape their view of of what's happening. And simply put, you know, oftentimes this this medium, uh, the broadcast medium. Uh, cannot convey the complexities of a region, of a country like Iran, of a country like Pakistan, Egypt, in a two, two and a half minute report. And these news organizations, you know, television news organizations, uh, you know, oftentimes the reports are limited to two, two and a half minutes. A reporter who's never been to a country, never been to a region, oftentimes flies in and their job is to describe 
a very complicated situation to an American audience who increasingly has a short attention span in two and a half minutes. And unfortunately, that's impossible to do. And what's left is um, those reporters, those journalists perpetuating the narrative that's already uh, established. Um, and yeah, yeah, you know, I, you know, that's I've observed that over over the past uh, twelve years, and it, it's it's been un, unfortunate. But th those are the realities of um, of, of this medium. Mm -hmm. And you've been doing some documentary filmmaking um, over the past uh, few years, and you were telling me before how you think this is a different medium, but not what. Uh, so much of an audience when you compare it to broadcast media. Talk about your work in uh, documentary filmmaking. I also saw some longer reports that you did for PBS about Iran's presence and influence in Iraq, which are a little longer than the two-minute slot that you were talking about. But um, tell me how that has been different from the broadcast media experience. Yeah, you know, I, I think... Um... You know, when it comes to complicated stories, complicated countries, complicated regions, the only way that you're going to convey those complexities is if you have a, a longer format. PBS NewsHour fortunately has a format where they allow reporters to go seven, eight, nine, ten minutes long. But even with those ten minutes, I think it's oftentimes a struggle to present a narrative that can make an audience think. Um, and when you go into deeper formats, you know, unfortunately, you know, documentaries, um, as, you know, as, as effective as they are in telling a story, longer formats don't have the eyes and the ears of the masses. When you look at these news organizations like, you know, CNN, you know, BBC, they, they set the agenda. They have the eyes and the ears of, of the masses. People tune into them on their iPhone, you know, on, on, on television. So if you go to a longer format, uh, you know, reporting, sure, you get a more thorough depiction of what's, what's happening. But unfortunately, you don't have, you don't, you don't have the eyes and, and the ears of, of the masses. Uh, and then for me, <laughs> personally, when I tried to do documentaries, and I still am, um, you know, it's, it's hard to generate an, an income. You know, it's hard to generate an mm -hmm. income. I mean, some of the most, some of the most meaningful documentaries that, that, I've, that I've done, you know, we did one on the history of, uh, of polo, the, the sport of polo here in Iran. We've done a, a, a couple on, on artists on the startup community here, they've been meaningful, but they haven't <laughs> generated an income. And I found mm -hmm. that the more in-depth and meaningful the projects that I produce are, the less money I make and the more superficial they are, the more money I make. And I think that's a dilemma that a, a lot of storytellers, a lot of journalists and a lot of filmmakers are facing these days. And finally, Reza, going back to views on Iran, uh, from my vantage point here in Washington, there are so many Irans, depending on which expert you talk to, which Iran watcher you ask, or even which Iranian in the diaspora um, you talk to. And 
it's very much um, as diverse and uh, different in Iran as well. Talk about these different Irans or these different perspectives and views, very much conflicting sometimes, of Iran and how you think this gets shaped. The, the more I spend time in Iran, the more I see uh, how fascinatingly complicated it, it is, how unpredictable it is. You know, how it's so many things, you know, it, it's, it's a dictatorship, it's a theocracy. Uh, but in, you know, many ways up until this election, it, it had democratic elements, it had competing centers of, of power, it's evolving, it's one of the most educated countries in the region, 60% of college graduates uh, are women. Remarkable progress among young Iranians despite the economic lim limitations. So Iran is complicated and it's so many things and it's evolving. And when I listen to people talk about Iran, first off, I mistrust people who are certain about Iran because it's such an unpredictable place. When someone's certain about Iran, you know, I think to myself, you know, I, I pretty much tune them, them out. If someone expresses uncertainty about Iran because it's so unpredictable to me, I will listen to them. I will find, uh, I will find him or her more interesting. And I, and I find that when someone is talking about Iran, I learn more about them than I do about Iran. Often people's opinion about Iran is a reflection of who they are and their values, their life experiences, and maybe who they work for and their jobs. There's so many uh, people working in think tanks who are paid to think a certain way. And if they change their view, they're not going to have a job uh, much longer in that think tank. Same thing with, with, with journalists. Oftentimes, there's a dominant narrative, and it's hard for a journalist to come to a producer who's under pressure to say, you know what, I have a different narrative that's in contrast to the dominant uh, narrative. And as far as Iranians go, many Iranians, especially in the diaspora, even in my family, their views of Iran are a reflection of what they've been through. And what they've been through has oftentimes been very painful. Many Iranians uh, among the diaspora, uh, they, went, they lost a lot. They suffered a lot in the revolution. And they see Iran through that prism. And I think for anyone who's interested in learning about Iran and discussing about uh, Iran, it, it's important to keep these in mind. It's great that you mentioned that. I want to mention a previous um, episode on this very podcast, Iran podcast, where I speak to Negar Razavi about Washington's problem of Iran expertise on top of all of these issues that you mentioned. There's also this um, lack of true knowledge and experience of the country, of the language, of the uh, newsmakers, and how nuance. And as you're saying, an uncertain um, view on the country is constantly attacked and smeared in Washington. I encourage There's no nuance. There's no listen. time for nuance. There's no time for uncertainty. <laughs> you got to be certain. Give me the facts. You know, I got to go. Exactly. There's no time for nuance. Iran is exactly. all about nuance. It's all about complexity. Exactly. Exactly. Nuance is usually not rewarded. That no, is it's not. What I've. Nu you can't do nuance in two minutes. 
Exactly. All right. Well, on that note, Reza Jan, I want to thank you so much for joining the Iran podcast. Happy to do it. It was a pleasure, Negar. That was Reza Saya, a journalist and documentary filmmaker, joining me from Tehran. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Iran podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Twitter at Iran Podcast. You can also support us by going to anchor.fm slash the Iran podcast. Until next time, goodbye.